let's look at Genesis chapter 40. We have, not that any of these chapters are disinteresting, but I find the chapter that we're going to be reading this morning um, especially, I'm really drawn into this, and I hope I'm able to convey some of the, the burden that I have as we look at this chapter this morning. So let's read it, see if you kind of get, get a feel for where the interest level might be and what we're going to be talking about. So it says in verse number one, sometime after this, I hope you just notice that phrase. I'll call attention to it back again in a minute. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued, here's this expression again, for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Interesting, isn't it? Dreams again. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Note that expression. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hands as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it, will, it is well with you, and please do me kindness to mention, to, uh, to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost baskets were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure they were Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them 
Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So let's pause and we'll ask God's blessing. Dear Father, we come to you at the outset of another day, and we desire, if we have any, haven't already done so, and even if we have, to reiterate, we, we acknowledge our dependence upon you. We acknowledge that we're incapable of going through any day and accomplishing anything for your glory or any spiritual consequence or good without your help, and so we ask for it now. So that as we come to this place to worship today, <clears throat> we will not be distracted. Uh, we will not have the seed of God's word cast out only to have the birds of the air come and rob it from us, but that it will find lodging in our hearts and be in good ground and bring forth fruit. So for all the other Sunday school classes as they meet now and then for our morning worship service and even the service tonight, we make our prayer. But right now for this class and for each one who's here, I pray that you will help me to minister in a way that pleases you today. And I pray that those things that I say will be the things that you want to be said so that you will be able to honor them and bless them uh, to, to our good and for your glory. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. Have you ever noticed, when you think about the subject of trials in the Christian life, trials come in all sorts of shapes, forms, and sizes. So some come with a, with a mighty intensity, and they may be of relatively short duration. But other trials, if you've ever noticed this, and this is kind of its own trial, other trials just seem to drag on and on and on. It weighs on you, you pray about this, but it weighs on and on. And that in itself is a trial of a different kind, and that in itself, due to its duration, is an additional layer of the trial. So when we come to this particular chapter, that's kind of what we have. And, you know, when you're thinking about this chapter, it's not as if we don't know a little bit about the end of the story. We do, and we, but we keep hoping as we read along chapter by chapter that, that this long period of time in Joseph's life will finally be at an end. It's not, we're not quite there yet. God knows it's not time. And there are reasons for that. We're going to see that as we get down into the lesson in just a little bit. But it, we do know this. When the chapter ends, as it says in chapter 41, verse 1, there's two more years left. But I will say this by way of encouragement. You know, this is the last chapter which is devoted over to that period of Joseph's life that we might call his humiliation. I'm using words because I want you to think about Christ. When we get to chapter 41, we will enter a period of his life that we might easily describe as his exaltation. Since we know, and if you don't mind this terminology, since we know that Joseph is a type of Christ, and there are so many parallels between Joseph and the life of Christ, that's a significant point. Humiliation precedes exaltation. The cross comes before the crown. And you know, that's how it's working out for us in our Christian life as well, and there's something that we can take encouragement because even though the period of our earthly sojourn may seem long to us, and many trials go on for a long time. It is, there is a day when it's coming to an end, and we will enter a period of exaltation, and we will be in his presence, and we will share his glory. And that's something you, you, you want to constantly, we, all of us want to constantly keep a hold of. So in this chapter, though, think about this. And this is, I think, what adds to the poignancy of this. 
It's like the chapter starts with a ray of hope. I mean, Joseph has been for some time in this place, and that's not really defined for us, but he's been for some time, and all of a sudden, these two people, and they're not just ordinary criminals. These people are high-ranking officials in, in Pharaoh's court or in his house. If, if you have need of an illustration there, all you have to really do is think of the chief butler or the cupbearer. King James uses the word butler, and it's less letters and easy to say than cupbearer, but cupbearer is a little more descriptive of all what his job is, and butler almost sounds like the English period from which that translation came. But he's like Nehemiah. So if you think about this, that position is important. Think about what your responsibilities. You'd be charged with being certain that the pharaoh or the king was happy, and not only that he was happy with what you served him, but that you didn't serve him any poison. That'd be part of your responsibility. And you have access. So if you think about American government, um, that's one of the things that people kind of prize, right, is access. You have access to the president, or if you're in the FBI, you have access to the director, or you don't. So access is is an important thing, and, and he has that. And these are important individuals. So Joseph sees these people come, and then he hears about dreams, and all of this serves to kindle a ray of hope. But my goodness, you get to the end of the chapter, and Joseph has every reason to make the request that he makes of the chief cupbearer in verse 14 when he says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so forth and so on. I mean, really at this point, folks, think about this. Joseph has this man in his debt. Not only does he have the interpretation, but in the case of the chief cupbearer, he has a favorable interpretation. And so we have this ray of hope, and no doubt Joseph had this ray of hope. And You get to the end of the chapter and you get this dull thud in verse number 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And I'm trying to set the stage by pointing out to you that I think that this now, and this is where this chapter is, to me it's a very drawing subject to consider. This, I think, unleashes upon Joseph a new kind of trial or a new kind of temptation. And it stands in marked contrast to the one that we talked about in chapter 39. The chapter 39 temptation was a temptation of the flesh with Potiphar's wife. But you know, we get both kinds. You don't just get the temptations to the flesh, and they aren't just always that particular temptation. The flesh is subject to all manner of of temptations and trials, but boy, when you have something that impacts your spirit, when you're discouraged, when you're tempted to be resentful, when you're tempted to be angry, when you're tempted to be bitter, all of those things are sins of the spirit, and they are equally potent, and in some cases I think they are more difficult for some people to handle and deal with than the other kind, although they are both, uh, you, you don't want to, to take either of them lightly. Here's a couple of verses let's think about. This is to kind of give you some insight from the wisdom of the Proverbs about the things I'm talking about. Hope deferred, so a ray of hope is kindled, but what happens when hope is deferred? See, he says it makes the heart sick. That's discouragement, that's despair. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life, Proverbs 13, 12. 
The next one, Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is a good medicine, is good medicine, but a crushed spirit drieth up the bones. It's just like it, it sucks all of the spiritual vitality out of you. And I think this is what Joseph is grappling with here. And I think that uh, we, we, in life we have to grapple with both. And the main thing that I really want you to see is, is that what's going on here is every bit as potent and maybe more so than what he had to deal with. It's almost like God keeps piling things on. You know, if this were a football game, you'd almost be tempted to think the referee should blow the whistle and say, piling on. But God knows, God is faithful, and we'll see that develop in the chapter. So today we're just going to look at two key headings. First of all, trials continue. I think we've sort of set the stage for this because, I mean, the pressures continue to mount. And I have three things that I want to say to you just to sort of develop that a little bit more. This one I've sort of primed the pump on already. The first is we're talking about a long period of time. So I mentioned to you the references that we have there in uh, the chapter to the time elapsed, but we don't have any definition to this. Verse number one, verse number four just says for some time. There is a reference back in chapter 39 that mentions the same kind of idea but without definition. So go back to chapter 39, verse 7, and you'll notice, look what it says here in verse 7, and after a time. Here's the problem, folks. We really don't know. How long was it until Potiphar decided, you know, this, this guy, I mean, when, when, when he first bought, I almost said hired, but it's, it wasn't quite that way, but when he first bought Joseph, it appears from reading these verses carefully that he determined to place Joseph, he didn't buy him for the field, he bought him for the house, and he was a house servant. But as he watched Joseph, then he decided that he would make him chief overseer, and so it, there was a, a small ray of exaltation there, only to be dashed rather quickly when the situation happens with Mrs. Potiphar. We don't know how long he was a house servant, we don't know how long he was chief overseer before um, she caused the problem that she did. And then, you know, we know what happens at the end of the chapter. Here he is, he's in prison, and he's under the charge of a different individual. We don't know how long he's in prison before this guy sort of figures out the same thing, or it's possible even that Joseph's reputation preceded him. In fact, it's even possible that Potiphar said something to the keeper about Joseph and what kind of things he might be capable of and keep your eye on him. It's possible, but we just don't know how long. But what we do know, folks, is this. We do know how long this entire period of time spans, and that's kind of the point that I want to get to. So that's why I gave you that chronology of Joseph in the first lesson. You don't have to find that now, or you don't have to have it if you don't have it. You may want to go back and look at it sometime, but let's go back and read verse 37, or chapter 37, verse number 2. So when we are introduced to, to Joseph, how old was he? 17. That's what the verse tells us. Chapter 37, verse 2, Joseph being 17 years old. All right, let's go clear to the end of the story, so to speak. Not the end of the, real, the whole story, but let's go to 41, verse 46. How long is it until he's standing before Pharaoh? So verse 46 says this, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let's do some quick math. What if you take 17 away from 30? See, that dates me because when we were, that was an expression we used when we learned math. 30 take away 17. Did any of you have that? 
Yeah, 30, take away 17. You get how long? 13 years. That's a long time. Where do things shake out at the end of this chapter when it says, yet, verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him? He's 28. And how we know that is the next verse tells us, chapter 41, verse 1, there's two more years. Now, you think about long trials. We're talking about a period of 13 years. And I, you know, just want to point out to you, when you think about this, I want you to think, if you're not in that time period in your life, think back to when you were 17. See, this is what, you have to let yourself be drawn into the story, and you have to let the details permeate your heart, and you have to meditate on these things, I think, to get some of the real benefit from them. Think back to when you were 17. You know, I, I remember that better than I can think back to when last week. But when you were 17, do you remember you were just kind of coming into young adulthood? And maybe when you were 16, maybe even younger, but somewhere in that period of time, and especially now as you get to be 17, you've got enough understanding of what's around you and what you've experienced thus far that you begin to develop ideas about what you envision your life being what you want to do in life, some ideas. You may not have the whole thing mapped out, but you know enough about life. I remember I did now. That particular year has a lot of significance, and I guess it's in some ways why I identify so that I do with Joseph, is because that's the year that the Lord really started working in my life. But I remember before that what I was thinking, and I had a definite, definite take on what I thought life was going to be and where I wanted to go in life and the things I wanted to have and do. Now jump forward to when you were 28. For most people at that point you're married, you started out into life, and the years of young adulthood are almost drawing to an end. In fact, by the time you're 30, I think it's fair to say they have. You're not old at that point, but young adulthood, you're sort of passing out of that phase of life. So just think about what I've just said, all of those years. Think back to what you remember about yourself during those years, what your thoughts were, what your dreams were, what your plans were, and they're gone. I mean, they're up in smoke insofar as he's either in prison or he's in Potiphar's house as a house servant. It, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it wasn't what he was thinking when he was 17. It was a difficult time, too. I want you to think about this. We're not only long, but long makes difficult, but difficult in its own right because you ever think about prisons. Now, see, I can, I can tell you a little something about this from somewhat firsthand experience because in our town where I served, we had two maximum security prisons. They're called state correctional institutions. They were both filled to way over capacity and they had some of the bad guys. And typically the way, I'm sure corrections in general, that's the term you use for it, um, I'm sure in general they employ these policies, but typically, like if you're in central Pennsylvania in SCI Huntington, SCI State Correctional Institution Huntington, if you're in SCI Huntington, you're not from that area. You're from, a lot of the people in there were Philadelphia. Bad is bad, but some bad ones do come out of Philadelphia. And it's amazing to see what God's grace. I can remember going in there, 
Bruce knows about this. We've talked about this because you have your Rock of Ages guy. We had a guy that we supported our church, Rock of Ages. Oh, that guy was a crackerjack. I'd go in there with him, and, and <laughs> he's like your guy. He really knew the ropes. He knew how to, to do things. But you had the church within the prison. they come out for those meetings, and you'd go there and preach, and I, it was easier to preach in the church. I those guys just ate it up. And it, you could go for an hour, and they didn't bat an eye. No, no sounds from the cloud. <laughs> you know, if you went an hour, they were glad for you to go another hour. But Egyptian prisons, if you've done any reading, I mean, and every prison has its, its hole. Some may call it the hole. But it's the place where if you're really bad, and they want to isolate you and punish you on another level, they put you in the hole or the pit. And that's why it's significant. There's a reference to that in chapter 37, verse 24, when Joseph's brother, brothers sell him in, they first put him in a pit. Look at chapter 37, verse 24. And you'll find this. I made the comment at the time they took him and threw him into a pit. And you look up this word, and of course it's important, the detail that the verse continues to supply. The pit was empty, there was no water in it, because it was being used as a cistern. But I rather doubt this particular pit, even though it's the very same word. Um, in our text, uh, verse 15, I guess it is, uh, at the end of the verse, also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Same exact word, but I doubt this was a cistern. This was probably just the place that if they wanted to let you know you'd been bad or you were one of the worst, they put you. No fun. Isolation, all that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, have I painted enough of a picture for you? If I haven't, let's look at a divine commentary that's given to us. Um, oh, I backed up, did I? Wrong button. I have that verse. So this is verses 16 through 18. One little point, you know, when you're, when you're studying like this, obviously your first line of material is the story itself, but another thing to do is use a concordance or whatever and try to see where else in the Bible these subjects are discussed because many times God furnishes his own commentary. So here we have this in Psalm 105, verses 16 through 18. When he, that is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet, listen to this, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. I'm telling you, folks, it's easy for us to be thinking about, well, uh, when Potiphar had him as the overseer of the house, that wasn't bad. But he didn't, you know, I mean, that was a briefer period of time. When Potiphar got mad, he put him in the bad place. And then he was obviously, at times, in that situation, and it wasn't easy in there. I mean, when they wanted to let him know about their displeasure, they had his feet and his, and his neck in shackles. This is not a walk in the park, and that's my point. And third, and this is something I also tried to hint at earlier, it was a bruising time. I want to give you a couple thoughts here to try to develop this, because with bruising, I'm talking about all those things that would be a a wound to the spirit, the temptation to anger, bitterness, resentment, discouragement, all those things. First of all, the personal involvement of the captain of the guard 
what are we talking about here? I thought he was in this prison now, and, and the keeper was his boss. Well, that's true. So look at your text, and back up to chapter 39 for a moment, and look at verse 21. So here was the, here was the guy that had hands-on duty with Joseph, so to speak. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight, look at this, of the keeper of the prison. In the next verse it says, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge. All right, so, so, so much to the good. But look down here at verse 7 of chapter 40. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house. This is the keeper. It's not the captain of the guard. And when you read in verse 2, and Pharaoh was angry with two of his officers and put them in custody, verse 3, in the house of the captain of the guard, not the keeper. This is kind of like the guy who's over the keeper. It's like the keeper is the guy that's making the rounds and being sure that everything's functioning properly, but overall, there's someone over that, I don't know, maybe like the police commissioner, he's not out there riding around in a squad car, he's in an office and directing things. And it's maybe sort of along those lines and in that analogy. So the fact that Potiphar gets involved, I have to think to myself, hmm, I mean, I assume it's still Potiphar, no reason to believe otherwise. But I, I could just see where that might not set too well. I could see where that might just sort of pick a scab off a wound. I mean, he's there already because Potiphar didn't believe his story and chose to believe his wife, or chose to side with his wife might be a better way. I guess Potiphar was thinking he had to live with her. Either way you look at it, this is not good. Now Potiphar says, and by the way, I want Joseph in charge of these guys. And it's almost like that calls to remembrance, well, you know, I was in charge in your house, now I'm in charge in this prison. But I, I, you have to sort of, this is, this is sort of maybe a little conjecture, but why did, why did Potiphar take an interest in this? Well, if you've got the chief butler and the chief baker, realizing these guys aren't just kitchen staff, these guys are important people. Well, hmm, kind of interesting he decided to get personally involved and be sure that these guys were handled a certain way and kind of said to the, to the keeper, put Joseph in charge of these guys. Was he sort of uh, greasing the skids a little bit? Was it a little bit on the order of like Felix, where Felix called for Paul the oftener, as the King James says, hoping that money would be, I don't know. It, these are just interesting thoughts. What Potiphar's thinking, he's got these two guys, does he want to kind of be sure that he gives them a reasonably cushy, as, as reasonable as you can get, a reasonably cushy situation and put somebody competent over them so that depending on the outcome of the situation, and actually if that's his plan, it works pretty well because one guy does get out and is put back in his position and would be in a position to remember any favor that Potiphar did for him. But this doesn't mean that Joseph got any special treatment. If anything, it's just sort of like rubbing a little salt in the wounds. But this is the worst. The treatment of the cupbearer is a further injustice. So let's look at verse 23, because 
There's something here you've got to see and realize. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph pleaded with him in verses 14 and 15. But this says that he did not remember him, but forgot him. Notice how the expression doubles down. It says the negative, and then it says the positive, if to forget is positive. He not only did not remember him, but he forgot him. And here's what you have to understand about that. There's more color to these words than maybe you're thinking, because, you know, we talk about forgetting things, especially a lot of us in this class, and <laughs> well, we talk about forgetting things, and it just means that it just slipped away from us. It, it, we didn't mean anything by it. It just slipped away from us. That's not what this means. There's more color to this word because it involves an act of the will. Think about this in the Bible. When God says he remembers our sins against us no more, it doesn't mean that God just is an old fuddy-duddy and it just, they, you know, he just it, he kind of forgot. He got so many, people, so many people and so many sins to keep track of, it slipped away from him. Oh, no, 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 no. When the Bible says that he remembers our sins against us no more, it means he dismisses them. He will makes it by an act of the will to dismiss them out of his mind, to not call them to remembrance. That's what's going on here. So what's going on here is, is that once he gets out of jail, for whatever reason, it's not worth it to him. He doesn't want to get involved. I don't know why. I don't know all those details. I just know what it means. And so if you're Joseph, think about this. I just want you to think about this for a minute. This guy gets out of jail. He, Joseph knows what's going to happen. He's returned to his position. He has influence. He has access to Pharaoh. And every day, can you just kind of imagine Joseph being there every day, hoping that soon he's going to hear the guy with the keys. Come put the key in the door. Oh, and I'll be, I'll be out of this place. I'll, I wonder how long he did that. I wonder how long before he finally figured out, he finally figured out, ain't happening. They're not coming. Then how would you feel? Uh, you'd feel like a doormat. You got used. Here's somebody who's glad to take everything that you can do for them and then just dismiss you because it's not worth it to them for whatever reason. This isn't, this folks, this is brutal injustice to a person who's in Joseph's situation. So this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about these trials and I'm talking about them being bruising and having to deal with that. We have to move on. But you can see, it raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? How about this one? Is God really with me? Four times it says that in chapter 39 and it was pretty easy for Joseph. Joseph's not the one saying that. The story writer is the one saying that. But it's pretty easy for Joseph to say, you know, God is, I mean, you know, wow, I got sold in here, and first thing you know, I'm overseer in the house. I got dirt done to me in the house, and I get thrown into jail, and now I'm the head guy under the keeper. God must certainly be with me. Is God with him now? I'm just saying. You have to remember, Joseph is a great hero, but he's still just human like you and me. Has God forgotten me too? That sentence there, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Has God forgotten me too? The psalmist felt that way. 
How long, O Lord? We talked about long trials. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13, 1. So if the psalmist felt that way, we can only imagine that Joseph felt that way as well. All right, let's hustle on because we've got to bring this to a conclusion. Well, I think I've got you convinced, at least I hope so right now, but what, what we've described, this is not easy. These are not light, light trials. But Joseph hangs on. Joseph comes out of this thing the victor. That's not to say he didn't have some really bad days. You've got to think that way. You can't just think that here's this guy, he's impregnable, or otherwise what you're doing is exalting him to a place that no one really occupies. He's made out of the same bolt of fallen Adamic cloth that you and I are. And he undoubtedly has some really bad days. But he never, like Job, he never surrenders his integrity. What I'm interested in knowing, since we've all been there, I'm interested in knowing how did he do that because that's what I want to do. No matter how bad it gets, that's what I want to do. I don't want to surrender my integrity, my faith. I want to believe God, that it's going to be exactly like God told me, even if I don't understand when or how or anything else about the situation. I don't want to lose my faith in God. The moment you do that, you're done. So how does this happen? And I think the clue in the text is what he says when these guys tell him, he comes in and says, why are you sad? And they say, well, we had dreams and there's no one to interpret it. Now look, if Joseph had succumbed to this bitterness, if he had succumbed to this resentfulness, and, and, and this long trial had affected him to the place where he had lost any encouragement and any belief and trust in God, he would have probably said when they, he would have said something like this, when they said to him, we have dreamed a dream. I can see Joseph, if he's like our temptation, he might have said something like, well, good luck with that. I've had them too and they don't work. So you're on your own. Might sound good, but it isn't going to work. No. He doesn't say anything like that. Look at what he says. And Joseph said to them, interpretations belong to God, don't they? Tell me your dreams. Do you realize what's wrapped up in that? What's wrapped up in that means that he's still on the very same page he was when back in chapter 37 God gave him those two dreams. He's still on that same page. He hasn't surrendered that. He took that as vouchsafed from God, that God promised him that one day he was going to be exalted. He didn't know when, he didn't know how, he didn't understand much about it, it was vague, but God told him. And to him, God's word was good. No matter how dark the days seem to get, folks, we can't let loose of that. It's the only thing that's going to keep your eyes open some days. can't let loose of the fact that God is faithful to his word. And if in the midst of some bitter, difficult trial, God has given you a promise or God has spoken to you and given you encouragement like he did Joseph, you have to hang on to that. You can't let loose of that. I do too. So let's look. Instead, it's obvious that he still has confidence with God. He's 
He's still on the same page he was when the dreams were first given in chapter 37, verse 5, when he makes that statement to them in chapter 48. And you know what? Two years later, in chapter 41, verse 14, when Pharaoh called him and said, I have dreamed a dream, verse 15, he's still on that page. He hasn't changed. He still has that unshakable faith that God is in these dreams. Boy, I aspire to that, don't you? I mean... Sure, the treatment of the cupbearer is a setback. I mean, I, you know, that's, that's putting it politically. It's a disappointment. But in the final analysis, one thing it doesn't mean, you can try to figure out what it means, but one thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God is going to break his word. It means something else. You may have to pray and puzzle and try to figure out what it does mean, but it doesn't mean that God has defaulted on his promise. Let's go back to the divine commentary. It just meant that it wasn't God's time. How do I know this? Well, we didn't keep reading everything the divine commentary had in Psalm 105. Were we to have kept reading after it says in verse 18 about the collar of iron, verse 19 says, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Until what he, that is God, had said came to pass. God was testing him. God knew because of the weight of responsibility that he was going to place on Joseph that all of this building, all of this foundation, all of this growing that comes by hard testing was necessary. I, really, folks, I think had Joseph known the extent of what God had for him, he would have said, you're right. The king sent, when it was time, the king sent, the rulers of the peoples set him free. I want you to think about something. It's another way to look at this. So think what would have happened. Think what would have happened if the cupbearer had kept his word. Think what would have happened if the cupbearer had gone into Pharaoh and said, you know, thank you, Pharaoh. I'm so, you'll have to pardon my little humor. I'm glad you figured out it was the chief baker all along. But probably something like, oh, Pharaoh, thank you so much. I'm so glad I, you know, I, I, I didn't do or whatever. I'm so glad to be restored to my office. But you know something? I've got to tell you this. Because these dreams were important. I mean, in Egyptian culture, in that culture in that day, dreams were important. So this would not necessarily just be a, a casual detail. This might be something because you think about Nebuchadnezzar, what's the first thing he did when he had a dream? He called in all these people. They took these dreams very uh, seriously, so that wouldn't, have, that wouldn't have been an outlandish thing to do, but if he had done that and Pharaoh said, well, I'll look into it, and what would have happened? He would have gotten the story, this is, it, this is very much possible, gotten the story about Joseph being sold kidnapped and sold by his brothers. Yeah, Potiphar could have said something, but on the other hand, I don't think Potiphar was really overly concerned about that. Had he been released, especially since what he's saying when he asks the cupbearer to go back to Pharaoh was, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. If something was going to be done on his behalf, what would it have been? Send him home. 
He would have been 28 years old, two years shy of the time that Pharaoh had his dreams. And he would have missed, I'm just letting you look at it humanly, he would have missed everything that God had planned for him in life. Sometimes, folks, what I'm saying to you and me is sometimes it's probably just as well that God doesn't answer some of our prayers. Which is why it's good sometimes to say, or all the time if you don't say it, to have this attitude, pray what you're asking God for. Don't be afraid to do that, but always let God know that what you want in the final analysis is His will. And if you pray that way, some of your prayers, some of the things that maybe you really wanted may not be answered in quite the way or at all. But you will get what God wanted, and it will be best, and it will be something that in the end, you along with everyone else confess, he has done all things well. So don't give up whatever encouragement God has laid on your heart wherever you are. If you know that God has given you that, it's not just something you know you got up and had a funny feeling. If you know God has given you a verse, or you know God has given you a, a promise, or some other means by which he's focused your attention on his faithfulness to you, don't give up on that because God isn't going to break his word. And then I'll close with a little story about two little girls. There was, they were talking. One little girl said to the other little girl, holding out her hand, I have ten pennies. Her friend looked down and said, you only have five pennies. Only five pennies in your hand. What do you mean you have ten pennies? She said, well, I have five pennies in my hand, but my daddy told me when he got home tonight he was going to give me five more, so I have ten pennies. And I don't know what God has told you. Whatever he's told you, that's what you have. You just have to pray and wait, and God will be faithful. Hang on, folks. Sometimes it feels like it's for dear life. But hang on. Oh, God in heaven, we realize today that we have been so many times, it would seem on the precipice of losing all hope. And you have rescued us. You have brought us back from that. You have shined some ray of encouragement into our hearts. You have never failed to keep your word where you promise us in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 13, God is faithful. Who will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So help us to bear what you've given us. Help us to be joyful in it. Help us to trust you. And may we never give up the belief that you are involved in our lives every day and that you can work things out for your honor and glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.